The word of God is true. It is powerful. And through its proclamation, God works to open our eyes and our hearts to his perfect will and truth. May God bless the preaching of his word today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. So if you want to go ahead and make your way there, we'll get uh, to our passage here in a moment. But first, I want to, I want to share a story with you, uh, a story from uh, my past, a story from Krista and I's past. Uh, I remember several years ago when Krista and I were still in Bible college. Uh, we were wee little ones, you might say. We had a a good friend group comprised of other young married couples. One couple in our friend group was part of a a summer ministry, and uh, they approached Krista and I uh, to, and and encouraged us to apply for a leadership, a facilitator position in this ministry, in this program that they were running over the summer. Uh, But before our friends told us about the program, Krista and I, we hadn't even thought we knew about it, but we hadn't even thought of participating in it. Um, Our our thoughts, our minds were were going somewhere else, not because we weren't interested, not because it, it wasn't compelling, but simply because we were planning our lives as best as we knew how in another direction. And it wasn't until they came and talked to us that we thought, huh, we should think about this. That actually sounds like a, a neat program. I think that would be a benefit. And they think we would be a benefit to the program. So we applied, which included an interview that were actually given by this couple. Then we waited to hear back. At this point, Chris and I were excited about the ministry and the work we would be doing with them. But in the end... In the end, they didn't select us. They didn't choose us. And naturally, we were shocked and we were disappointed. The leaders had approached us about joining the ministry as leaders. They came to us. We didn't come to them. They came to us. But when we were rejected as leaders by the same people who encouraged us to apply, it stung It hurt. It left us confused. We thought we had the qualifications they were looking for, which is why we assumed that they had come to us. They'd come to us, we thought, because we had the qualifications they were looking for in the first place. They were the ones that planted this idea in our heads. We thought we were shoe-ins. We thought, because they approached us, It was a guarantee, and everything else was just trivialities. But as it turns out, and as it often does, we were wrong. And we didn't have what they were looking for. And we weren't enough. Have you ever wanted something? Have you you ever wanted something that you thought you were sure to get? Whether it was a job or a promotion, or maybe a relationship, only to find out their expectations for you were different than your expectations. If you, if you felt this, you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you felt that keenly. It sticks with you. If you felt this, then our passage today will likely resonate with you. Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And the disciples keep misunderstanding what Jesus is repeatedly teaching them. In our passage today, Jesus gives two tangible living analogies of those who will receive the kingdom contrasted with those that will miss it. They're going to fall short. They're going to turn away. They're going to miss it. This is a critical lesson for disciples to learn, and it's a critical lesson for you and I to learn, lest we think the kingdom of God is only a thing to be pursued, but only found out too late that we fall short. 
that we're not qualified, that we're not there. So, if you will, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and out of honor for God's Word, and if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of our passage this morning? We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Mark writes, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Do not fraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is not possible, but with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to, to say to him, See, we've left everything and, and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You may be seated. Thanks for bearing with me. That is a longer passage of Scripture, but worth reading all the way through, especially as we seek to unpack it. Mark gives us two stories, a story of, uh, a story of children and a story of a rich guy. Seemingly, these stories are unrelated, yet Jesus uses these two encounters to teach his disciples and us once again, about his kingdom. Specifically, in these passages, we see two different postures, if you will. Two different postures people can have towards the kingdom of God. One posture ensures the receiving of his kingdom. The other posture ensures that one will never receive the kingdom. These are postures you and I embody, whether we recognize it or not. The posture we embody in this life prepares us to receive or reject eternal life in God's kingdom. So it's important that we understand how are we to posture to receive, to possess the kingdom. If we miss this lesson Jesus is teaching his disciples today, we're in, we're in jeopardy 
of missing his salvation, his eternal life in his kingdom forever. Therefore, this is my proposition. Our kingdom posture determines our kingdom position. Our kingdom posture determines our kingdom position. We're going to jump right away into my first point. My first point is this. We must posture to receive the kingdom like children. We must posture to receive the kingdom like children. Look again at me. Don't look at me. Sorry. Look at your Bibles. Look again with me at the first story um, in Mark chapter 10 verse 13. Mark writes, And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, yet the disciples rebuked them. Remember, Jesus has left the Galilee region where he's been ministering for the duration of Mark's narrative up until Act 2 of Mark's gospel, which was back at about chapter 8, verse 22, with the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida, followed by Peter's confession. That's when we start turning the corner into Act 2 of Mark's narrative. Back in that chapter, Peter confessed, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, absolutely, you got that right. But let me tell you what kind of Christ I am. And he does. And then he says, and he begins uh, the, the tone. He sets the tone for all of Act 2 in Mark's Gospel. He says, therefore, because I am this kind of Christ and not that kind of Christ... Because I'm a Christ, you're not expecting to be a follower of me is going to be and are going to require from you things that you're not expecting. It's going to cost you. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the cost of discipleship because the cost of his kingdom is what Jesus is facing. So while Jesus has been teaching them, they have simultaneously, his disciples have been simultaneously traveling south with Jesus towards Judea, with Jerusalem as the final destination. We're we're at the end of chapter 10, we're going to be moving into Act 3 of uh, Mark's three movements in his gospel. Act 3 is ahead of us, chapters 11 through 16. Mark will... Uh, entirely, the, the narrative of Act 3, will the entirety of it will unfold uh, in and around Jerusalem, spanning the last eight days of Jesus' life. Do you guys remember Mark's favorite word? Immediately, right? Immediately. He uses that word over and over again at the beginning of his gospel, over and over again. And we talked about when we started entering Act 2, how that word begins to fade in its usage. And in fact, by the time we get to Act 3, Mark does not use it at all. He no longer says immediately. And it's like we've been rushing forward, fast forwarding through Jesus' life only to enter slow motion on the last eight days of Jesus' life because Mark says, you can't miss this. You can't miss this. And slowly he unpacks the last eight days of Jesus' life. In our passage today, Jesus is still, he's not at Jerusalem yet, he's likely east of the Jordan still, teaching and ministering to the people. As was normal, a, a crowd had gathered around him. And they were bringing their children, as Mark tells us, for Jesus to bless them. But Mark writes, the disciples rebuked the people. They rebuked the people from bringing their children. We're not told why. Perhaps we're not told why because in a first century context, no one was asking why. Right? They knew why the disciples would rebuke the people from bringing their children. The term used here for children is the Greek word paideon, paideon, which indicates an age range from infant to just before puberty, all right? 
So infancy to just about puberty. It's a broad range, but how it's used in the Gospels, how this word used in the Gospel, it's typically used to apply to very young children, to infants up to the age of four or five. Not exclusively, but primarily. For for example, don't take, take my word for it, Luke uses this word in his Gospel account in Luke chapter 1, verse 59, to refer to Jesus when he was presented for circumcision at only eight days old. It is also a term Matthew uses in his Gospel to refer to Jesus at the age when the wise men came and gave him gifts and bowed before him. In the ancient world, children had no legal status. They were essentially nobodies in society. Paul makes this point clearly, so you don't just think I'm making this up. Paul makes this point in Galatians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1. He says that the heir, that is likely the oldest son of the family, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from the slave. The child is no different. Even the heir of the family is no different from a slave. Kids were seen, in some cases, as literally non-persons until they had passed the age of 13, at what point they were considered adults. So, contrast the status of the kids then with the status of Jesus. In the disciples' eyes, Jesus is the greatest teacher they have ever seen, they have ever heard perhaps has ever existed in their estimation. And they're, not only that, but they're putting their hopes in him to be the next king to deliver Israel. The 12 disciples reason, certainly Jesus doesn't have time for children. So the disciples rebuke the crowds and prevent them from taking, taking up any more of Jesus' precious time with these groveling, smelly kids, Right? But Jesus has a different response. In verse 14, we're told, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was vexed. He was angry. He was put out and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus rebukes the disciples' actions and turns their perspective upside down. What they esteemed little, Jesus says, you must esteem much. Jesus actually says the kingdom of God belongs to ones like these, like these children. The, those that the world sees with very little value. They're the ones that are the possessors of the kingdom. Not inherently themselves, but childlikeness. Jesus ups the ante in verse 15, declaring, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on the small children. This had to be a startling statement for the disciples to hear. To receive the kingdom of God, they had to be like annoying, insignificant, smelly, worthless children? Now, that's not how we think of children, but in the first century, that was a common understanding. Like children? Like children. The disciples had to be scratching their head saying, what does Jesus mean? What is he talking about? Well, Jesus is saying children are a metaphor, a picture of those who who inherit the kingdom of God. He's claiming to enter the kingdom of God, one must become childlike. But that begs the question, right? That that begs the question, what are children like? What exactly is Jesus pointing to? Do we all have to suck our thumbs and regress to diapers? Some of you might want to, but no. That's not what he's saying. You don't get to wear, maybe when you're a little older, you can wear some Depends, but you're not there yet. That's not what he's saying, Right? Jesus is not saying that kids possess some inherent quality or virtue such as humility or innocence or purity 
or the like, because children at the same time are equally selfish, demanding, stubborn, and thankless. When grown adults act like children in these latter ways, we refer to it as childish behavior, and we condemn them for it. We tell them, grow up. So what is Jesus getting at? What does he mean when he is saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it? What is he referring to? What childlike characteristic or quality is Jesus alluding to? Okay, imagine with me. We have a lot of parents in here. We have uh, a lot of, uh, well, at some point, you were kids to parents, right? You, you know how children are, especially young children. Um, imagine this scene. Maybe this won't be hard to do, especially for you parents. Imagine the scene. A toddler comes up to their mother or their father. Maybe the child just fell and scraped their knee, or they're hungry, or maybe they're thirsty, or they're tired. But he comes up to his mom or his dad, and what does he do? What does the child do when he approaches mom or dad? What is their posture, in other words? Right? You, you don't have to hang out long with parents who have kids to, to identify the posture of a child. They come to mom and dad, they look up, and they outstretch their arms, palms wide open. What are they saying? I want you. I need you. You have what I need. It's been a while since my kids were this age. It's a little awkward when Ethan does this. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I had to see if he was paying attention. But I, I do remember it well. My kids would come up to me or they would come up to Krista and they would stretch out their arms wide indicating that they wanted to be picked up. They wanted to be possessed, right? They want to be held. They want to be owned. They want to know that they're safe. Why? Why do kids posture this way? It's because they want you. They want you. They want their mom. They want their dad. But did you know, did you know that, that this kind of posturing is actually universal? It's universal. It's not culturally bound to kids in North American uh, state of Montana, Bozeman, Montana, right? It's universal. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter the cultural background. It doesn't, it doesn't matter the religious upbringing. Children want their parents. They need their parents. And they come to their parents asking, arms spread wide, palms open, looking up, even before they can talk, you know what they're saying. They bring nothing. Children bring nothing. Posturing is universal because all babies come into the world bringing what? They bring absolutely nothing. They bring nothing. They have nothing. Nothing that is but needs. Children have nothing but needs. Nothing but utter, inescapable dependence on someone other than themselves. Small children posture to their parents this way because they're effectively saying, I need what only you can give because I can't get it myself. I'm incapable. I don't have what it takes to get what I need, but you do. You're enough. You're what I need. Whether it's food or drink or comfort or safety or love. What children bring is a needful dependence. Their arms are outstretched, reaching, begging for you to take them up into their arms and to give them, to provide for them what they do not possess, what they cannot possess on their own. They need you. They want you. They are a dependent upon you. And they're not shy. They're not self-conscious. They're not reserved. They're not careful or bashful. They're not dignified in their asking. No, they come desperate. 
They come dependent. They come needy with only one thing that occupies their mind. I need mom or dad because only mom or dad has exactly what I need. I can't get it myself. I'm helpless. I have nothing. I need them. So too, you and I. We cannot enter the kingdom, Jesus says, if we don't come desperate, needy, dependent. We bring nothing to the kingdom but our desperate need. We need what he has and we cannot possibly, we cannot possibly get it ourselves. He must provide the forgiveness, the acceptance with God, the eternal life, and all spiritual blessings. If God doesn't provide it, we will go without it. All of it. We will go without all of it. We have nothing to bring to the king and to his kingdom but our desperate need. Whatever we receive, like little children, is received by grace from him on the basis of our neediness, not our sufficiency, not on the basis of our merit or worthiness. Listen to this. Only empty hands can be filled. Only empty hands can be filled. So we must stretch out our arms wide and open our empty hands and receive what only God can provide. We must come to the king in a posture of neediness, for only then can we receive the Father's embrace, his comfort, safety, peace, forgiveness, salvation, eternal rest. No reasonable earthly father would turn away his desperate child, a child who is reaching for him, begging for him. No reasonable good parent would turn away from the child in disgust, in disdain. How much more the Father does, is the perfect heavenly Father, full of loving kindness. How much more does He not turn away from us, His desperately needy children? So Jesus beckons in Matthew, 28, or Matthew 11, 28 and 29. He says, Come to me, all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take comfort in this truth. There is nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture, search it yourself. There's nowhere in Scripture where God turns away a soul that is truly desperate for Him. Only the desperate, only the needy, only those like children with their arms stretched out wide, crying, Abba, Father, I have nothing but You. Only those are the ones that can receive the kingdom. God loves desperate people. God loves desperate people. What about you? What's your posture towards God? Are your arms outstretched, looking to Him in desperate need? Are you aware of your need for Him? Do you cultivate a childlike dependence on Him? You might be asking, well, how, how do we do this? Well, we have to come to Him, of course. The first step, we have to come to Him. How do we come to Him? Through His Word. We spend time with the Father. We receive the Father, the goodness that, that He has already given to us. He has spoken to us. The question is, are, are, are we listening? Are we listening to hear His voice? Go to Him. Listen to Him. But more than that, expect to receive from Him. From His Word. After all, the Word of God the Bible tells us, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing soul to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Perhaps part of the reason why so many of us struggle with cultivating a neediness before God is because we don't encounter God on His own turf. We don't encounter God in His Word. And when we do... It becomes a checklist. It becomes another duty, another task for the day. But we don't expect His Word to 
affect us. We don't let his word pierce our innermost being and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Those thoughts and intentions that even we are not aware of, that we are afraid of. Yet he pierces with his word and he draws them out. But we also must come to him in prayer. How often do kids uh, come to their parents when they want or need something? All right, if I, if I asked parents that, they would all laugh and say all day long, every moment of the day. Kids come to their parents all the time. Why? Because kids are needy. They have nothing but needs. It's exhausting sometimes, no offense. And they have no hope of having those needs met except through their parents. So they constantly come. They come to their parents with their needs. So too, we must cultivate the habit of coming to God constantly in prayer. God is not like us. He doesn't grow weary of our coming to Him, of our approach to Him. He invites it. He longs for it. He desires. He begs us to come to Him in prayer constantly. Paul encourages us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He encourages us to pray without ceasing. Unceasing prayer. Pleading. Begging. Thanksgiving. Praising. Come to the Father. Come before Him. Raise your arms and say, God, I have nothing else. I need you. And God delights in that. He's not wearied by it. He's not burdened by your needs because he's a God that supplies all our needs it reveals his compassionate care his love only God can supply no one else in the universe can supply what God supplies come to him let him reveal his glory to you to your soul let him heal you because you can't and you won't so come to him Because he delights in giving you the very thing you long for. He delights in it. Come to him. He wants you to reach out to him continually. To commune with him in prayer. So our first point again. We must posture to receive the kingdom like a child. Like a desperate, needy, messy child. We must posture father. I need you. But this is not all Jesus has to teach his disciples concerning the reception of the kingdom. Continue reading Mark 10, 17 through 22. Mark writes, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, this man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. My second point. Those with much cannot receive the kingdom. Those with much cannot receive the kingdom. No sooner had Jesus finished teaching his disciples about the the terms upon which one must enter the kingdom of heaven than a man runs up to him, wanting to enter the very kingdom Jesus has been teaching about. By all accounts, this man seems to be genuine in his desire to enter the kingdom. Mark says this man ran to Jesus. He ran up to him. He chased him down suggesting an urgency on the man's behalf. The text also says the man knelt before Jesus, perhaps a sign of humility, giving honor to Jesus. This is contrasted with the Pharisees who have come to Jesus in the past, 
Most recently, we saw this in last week's sermon, but their intent was to trap, to test, to expose Jesus as a fraud. In contrast, this man seems to have pure and earnest intentions. And he addresses Jesus respectfully. He says, good teacher, good teacher. But Jesus stops this man right there and asks him in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What's going on here? What a strange kind of exchange of of comments, of words. It's important to understand that Jesus isn't questioning this man's motives. Right? Neither is Jesus, as some scholars have suggested, insinuating that Jesus is denying his own divinity. God's good and I'm not him. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's actually, in fact, the exact opposite, what you would suppose. Jesus is teaching this man exactly who he is, who this man is encountering. The text doesn't preserve for us vocal inflections, right? It would be really helpful if it did, but it doesn't preserve vocal inflection. But I think Jesus is asking his question this way. Why do you, why do you call me good? Why is it you are calling me good? What's your motivation? Do you understand what you're saying? Why is it you are calling me good? Because only God is good. So why are you calling me good? The other reason Jesus questions the man about why he calls Jesus good is because likely the man believes himself to be good. Right? He, he perhaps sees Jesus as an equal. He says good teacher because he fancies himself a good man. Remember, the man came to Jesus running and asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus' answer is curious. Look at verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. And then he quotes six of the, old, or six of the ten commandments from the Decalogue, right? The, the ten commandments. Exodus 20. Jesus quotes these commandments, but specifically, and if you're paying attention, you note, he quotes only the last six commandments, which, as scholars have noted, are the commandments having to deal with how we treat one another, right? The the first four commandments are directed towards God. The last six are directed towards how we interact towards one another. But listen to this man's reply. He says, teacher, All of these I have kept since my youth. Now, I know some of you, uh, likely theologically astute enough to say, well, wait a second, that can't be true, right? You have the, you you systematicians, you have the the doctrine of uh, total depravity running through your brain, you Calvinists, right? Boom, right there, total depravity. He's a liar, he's wrong. Now, before you jump to that conclusion, It's helpful to understand how Jesus interacts, but also what this man is not saying. He's not saying he's kept all of these commandments flawlessly, right? He's not that brazen to think he's kept them all flawlessly without stumbling even once. Rather, he is saying he's a good Jew. He's a good Jew who takes the law seriously. That's what he's saying. I'm a good Jew coming to a good teacher. We're equals. He thinks himself a good man because he is a righteous, law-abiding Jew. And Jesus actually doesn't even argue with him. But do you remember what Jesus' point was just moments ago? Jesus' point moments ago was that you have to come to me in desperation. And yet this man does not come in desperation he comes saying I've done all these things and I'm good like you teacher I'm I'm good but he's not good and we know he's not good Jesus is saying you think you're a good man but your goodness is not enough your goodness is not enough. And Jesus says, let me show you. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, 
loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, one thing. And then he gives him four. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. I love the, I love the line, right? I, I keep emphasizing because this line stuck out to me this week as I was studying. I love the line. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. Maybe he even knew his God. Maybe he knew at this point this man was not going to enter his kingdom. But Jesus loved him. He didn't look at him with disdain or contempt. He didn't look down on the man, but he loved him. And told him the most loving, hard thing this man could have ever heard. Jesus loved this man by surgically cutting to the soul of this man. And laying bare his self-righteous heart. Jesus shows this man the one thing he's missing. The one thing he's missing. The first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. No other God before me. Verse 22 says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? Why did he go away sorrowful? Because he had great possessions. Or in the words of the first commandment, he had many other functional gods before him. Before Yahweh. He had many things before the one true God. What was this man's posture? What was his posture? His arms were not up. They were not outstretched. They were not desperate. They were not needy like a child saying, Father, I need you. Because he was too preoccupied, clutching, grasping, and holding on to all that he had. Everything that he thought gave him worth. His stuff prevented him from receiving the kingdom because he had no room to receive. His pos- the posture of his heart was closed tightly in an, re- in an embrace of his stuff. His stuff. This is another tragedy. For he forsakes the kingdom and its king for worthless idols. Bear with me for a moment. This, this reminds me of another story. I think I actually saw this on a documentary a number of years ago. But it's a story of a, a tribe in South America that hunts monkeys. Monkeys are considered a delicacy. They hunt monkeys. Right? But this tribe is unique and it stands out to me because of how they hunt monkeys. You know people use bow and arrow to shoot the monkeys down and there's tribes that use uh, poison arrow or darts to blow darts to, to tag the monkeys and they poison them and they fall to the ground. But not this tribe. They don't bring anything with them but a piece of fruit and a piece of wood. That's all they bring. The monkeys are high in the tree, inaccessible. So the hunter down on the forest floor, has his, his fruit, and he, he goes and he finds a tree. A tree with a knot in it, but not just any knot, a knot that has fallen out, and there's a hollow place in the tree. And he sticks the fruit in the tree in front of the monkeys. And he walks away. He retreats. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And eventually, monkeys, as curious as they are, come down, right? Curious George. They come down, and they, they want to see They want to see what the man has left. And they see the fruit. And one particularly particularly brave monkey goes over and reaches in and grabs the fruit, lays hold of the fruit in the knot of the tree. And that's the cue for the hunter. He emerges from his hiding place and casually walks over. And it's in my mind, so I had to have seen this, right? He walks over to the monkey and the monkey goes berserk. Right? It's freaking out, but it's not running away. It's not running. Why isn't it running away? Because it has the fruit. And the fruit doesn't fit through the hole when his fist is wrapped around it. He can't pull the fruit out, but he can't let go of the fruit. He won't let go of the fruit. And the hunter casually walks up, thumps the monkey on the head, and the monkey drops the fruit. He hung on to it for dear life. He hung on to it for all of his life. Only when the monkey is dead will it relax its grip on the fruit. 
but by then, it's too late. So it is with us. This man refused to release his grip on his great wealth. He had too much, too much treasure in this life, and he was unwilling to loosen his grip to receive eternal life, the eternal life Jesus is offering. Jesus uses this sad story once again to teach his disciples about what it means to follow him. In verse 23, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But why? Why were they amazed at his words? Because wealth is often seen as a sure sign in the first century and in Jewish culture, was seen as a sure sign of God's blessing in your life. Think about Old Testament stories. Wealth was frequently a sign of God's favor. Think about Abraham. Think about Solomon. Even think about Job in his latter life. How do you know that Job was reconciled back to God? Well, partly, how did his friends know? They weren't privy to the conversation. Well, Job was restored twice as much as what he had before. He was a man of great wealth, greater wealth, far greater wealth than what he had before. But we must clarify this carefully. We must clarify this thinking very carefully. Wealth and success is not a sure sign of God's favor in the Bible. Yes, there are times when God's favor is shown through material blessing. Absolutely. But Proverb, Proverbs warns repeatedly and emphatically about the dangers and pitfalls of wealth. Jesus himself in his earthly life was lonely or was largely homeless and certainly he was not wealthy. God can bless us with possessions, but more often than not, that blessing, blessing was often turned into, the, into a curse through the hands of idolatrous man throughout the Old Testament. Just think of Israel, right? God blesses Israel with a land, with peace, with protection, with a kingdom. And in the hands, God's blessings in the hands of idolatrous men, it's turned into a curse so that they're exiled from the land. And all that they had, all that they clung to, was taken from them. However, we too can fall into thinking wealth and success means God's favor. Especially when we see others flourishing. We tend to ask God, what are we doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Why is it so hard for me? Why am I not receiving the blessing? I'm working hard. I deserve it. God, do, do you not love me? Do you not like me? Are you not with me? Am I yours? Where's the blessing? We tend to ask God what we're doing wrong and what they're doing right. The disciples likewise assume that someone like this rich, pious man must have God's favor and blessing. So of course, they assume, he will inherit eternal life. By his own admission, he's a righteous man. He's kept the law. And he's wealthy. He's, got, he's kept the law and God's blessed him. Of course he's going to enter the kingdom, so they think. But Jesus reiterates in verse 24, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' statement here is what connects this story of the rich young ruler to the previous story about the children. Verse 24, Jesus addresses his disciple as children. This is the first and only time Jesus addresses, in Mark's gospel, Jesus addresses his disciples as children. And it's not a coincidence. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and they've been given a clear picture of what it looks like to receive the kingdom. Children. And now they've been given a clear picture of what it looks like to reject the kingdom. Note the posture in each party in their respective stories. The children have their arms wide, hands open, seeking to receive while the rich man's hands are closed tightly on his wealth. The disciples then ask, well then, who can be saved? Who can be saved? 
Jesus gives an amazing answer. Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it, that is salvation, is impossible. It's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Don't miss this glorious truth. Jesus doesn't say salvation is possible for man if he works hard enough. And he doesn't say a person whose heart is tethered to the idols of this world, they have a hard time. They have a difficult time. It is a struggle for them to receive the kingdom of God on his own. But it's possible for this man to cut those tethers. Right? It's difficult, but it's possible. It's possible for, for him to free his heart and to, to come to Jesus. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what he says at all. Jesus doesn't even say it's hard for a person to be saved. What he says is, with man, it is impossible. It is impossible. We cannot do it. It is impossible. It's like trying to thread a needle with a camel. You can't do it. It's not possible. It's ridiculously impossible. The bonds of idolatry in the human heart cannot be broken by mere men. But with God, all things are possible. It is God who has the power to change your heart and to set you free. God alone has the power to overcome our stubborn hearts and our vice-like grip on the things of this world. And this brings me to my third and final point. What we possess ultimately possesses us. What we possess ultimately possesses us. Look at Luke 28 and following. Peter, good old Peter, began saying to Jesus, See, see, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions, slip that one in there, and in the age to come, eternal life. Remember the monkey? The monkey reached its arm into the hole to seize the fruit as its own, to make it his, but in the end, this treasured possession really owned him. It had a hold of him. So it is with whatever we lay a hold of, whether good or bad. It's not even just bad things. Whatever we lay hold of and we grip to firmly and refuse to let go, and we don't come to God with our hands open, our arms outstretched, saying, my only hope is in you. This rich young ruler had closed his fist around the treasure of the kingdoms of this world, He thought that by possessing the much, the much in his possessions, they would make much of him. But in the end, his stuff, his treasures owned him. And like the monkey, he couldn't let go. Peter's starting to understand He's starting to get what Jesus is saying. Maybe, just an inkling. He's starting to get it. Look at what Peter says. He says, see, Jesus, we've left everything. We've we've let go of it. We've relinquished our grip. We've let it go. Everything. And we followed you. We're not the rich young ruler, God. We've let it go. In other words, Peter is saying, we're holding the possessions of this world with an open hand because we're holding you with a closed fist we're gripping you Jesus the disciples like desperate children they've dropped whatever they're holding on to and reaching for the father and Jesus said says it is right 
to hold this world with an open hand. To hold this world with an open hand so that you might cling to me with a closed fist. Because when you have hold of the king, only then do you receive the kingdom. Because get this, the king is actually the one holding you. It's not your grip on the king that ensures you have the kingdom. It's his grip on you. Just like a young child who clings to their father or their mother, who's holding whom in that instant? The child is gripped by the parent and their grip is sure. It is steadfast. It is firm. Listen to Jesus' promise in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Cling to me and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. There's no one greater than the Father. Therefore, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We reach to lay hold of Jesus, but we find that it is he who has laid hold of us. You can only truly receive the benefits of the kingdom when you have laid hold of the king. Whoever has the king has the benefits of the kingdom. And the truth is, when you lay hold of the king, it's not you that has laid hold of him, but he of you. The rich young ruler had it backwards. He sought to lay hold of the kingdom by grasping and clutching its benefits. The comfort, the wealth, the security, the position, the power, the influence, the prestige. Yet Jesus says, many who are first, many who do whatever it takes to build their kingdom, to seize their kingdom in this life, those who have put themselves first, who have worked hard to lay hold of much in this life, actually, they'll be last. And they'll miss the kingdom. They'll miss the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying the only way to possess the kingdom is to receive the king, to cling to Jesus with a closed fist, and to hold everything else with an open palm. So my conclusion. Here's the thing. Too often we assume we've laid hold of Christ and that we have eternal life. We must be careful that we don't quickly assume that we have eternal life. Remember, the rich young ruler obeyed the commandments. The lesson of the rich young ruler is a warning to remind us to truly examine our hearts. What is it you and I, what is it we're clutching? What is it, what is it that we're holding on to? What are you clutching that you can't let go of now? What is closed in your hand? What are you willing to lose everything for? And then a step further. How do you know what you're willing to lose everything for? How, how do you know you're willing to let things go for the sake of clinging tighter to Christ? How do you know? How do you know? Well, does this mean we have to sell everything and own nothing? Jesus didn't insist that Zacchaeus, the rich Zacchaeus, sell all of his possessions before he would eat at Zacchaeus' house. Rather, Zacchaeus willingly opened the hand that he had closed on his dearest possessions. Zacchaeus opened his hand that was closed on his ill-gotten wealth. And he voluntarily offered up to give half of his wealth fourfold, to pay back fourfold those he had defrauded. Jesus responds to Zacchaeus' offering. Half of his possession. The rich young man, all of your possessions. Zacchaeus, half of his possessions. Jesus turns to Zacchaeus and says, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Why? Because God cares so much about possessions? Yeah, he does. He cares about you possessing him. And if you don't possess him, you have nothing. He cares very much about what you possess. Very much. Possess him. And you get everything else included. Because he's made everything. He sustains everything. He owns everything. 
Don't go after his benefits and miss the king. This principle doesn't just apply to material things, right? Possessions are not just material things. We can easily make knowledge. Listen, Emmaus Road Church, especially theological knowledge. We can make knowledge or our morality, our popularity, the esteem of others, religiosity, friends, entertainment, respectability, titles. We can hold it all, any of it, with an iron-clad grasp. And we can, we can paint a veneer of religious talk and gospel-sounding words to cover it up so no one can see it. But you, you know what you're clinging. And if you don't expose your heart to, to God's Word and let it cut soul and spirit to divide, to discern the deep things of your heart, that even the intentions and the will of your heart, let God lay it bare. And let go. Release. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. What might, be, what might you be risking having your hands closing and relinquishing the kingdom? What is it you're holding on to? What's competing for the kingdom of God? We all have things right now that we're clinging to tightly. We can't help it. We all have. Don't be fooled. Every single one of us in here, me especially, this was a hard sermon for me this week. Hard. Because God showed me my, the things that I'm clinging to. I have never wrestled so deeply with my own selfishness as I did this week. And it broke my heart. It's hard to get up here and preach this. It's hard to sing the songs we sing, Give Me Jesus. Right? I want that so bad. And yet my heart competes for lesser things. And I know it. And so I come before him, Papa, Father, help me. I've got nothing else. I've got nothing else. I can't do it. I can't break free of my own idolatry in my own heart. Help me. And he's a good father. And he does. He does. He says, Micah, it's okay. Just loosen your grip a little bit on this. And strengthen your grip on me. And he enables me. He enables you to do that. He's not asking you to do something He's not empowering you to do. He wants your salvation more than you. And He's the God of all power, all authority, all dominion. Relinquish your rights today, again, and every day. Know that you're clinging to other things and relinquish them. And continue to relinquish them until the final day comes and you see Him face to face and He welcomes you. Good and faithful servant, come into my rest. You say, this is where I've been heading all along. This is what I've wanted all along. This is all I've ever wanted. And He says, receive the benefits of my kingdom. And you're like, that's great, but I really just want you, Jesus. That's it. I just need to see your face. I just need to know and to see your love that you have poured out on me because you held on to nothing but me. You held on to nothing but me. And that's enough. He's done it. It is finished. Let go. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us with such a great love that we cannot even fathom. God, we confess we are a people who have loved you with so little of our heart in our lives. And yet, God, you do not look down and despise us. Because you know, you know we never could do it without you. But you look down, you look at us, and you love us. You love us. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us, for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you are enough. That only you, only you is enough, nothing else. So God, help us as a church, as a people. Help us to relinquish our hold on the things of this world, whatever they may be. Lord, give us strength, give us courage, give us boldness to relinquish our grip on the things of this world that pale in comparison to you. And Lord, help us to look deeply and longingly into your face with arms outstretched, palms open, and cry, Abba, Father. And know that you have all we need, everything we need. So Lord, help us in our weakness. Thank you that you already have in Jesus. It is finished. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are the one who has finished the good work we never could. And it's to you we pray. Amen.